Let's open our Bibles. Let the word of God be heard. Second Corinthians chapter 12, beginning in verse 11. And as you're turning, let me welcome those who may be watching our live stream this morning. Uh, we'd love to have you join us. May God bless you. If you need a Bible or have other needs that we can help with, please be in touch with the church. Paul has been writing for chapter upon chapter. We're in chapter 12 of the 13 in this letter. He's been wrestling with people back at this dear congregation that have misrepresented and misunderstood him. And uh, he's bringing his argument really to a climax with these words. Reading from the English Standard Version of God's Holy Word. I've been a fool, you forced me to it, for I ought to have been commended by you. For I was not at all inferior to these super apostles, even though I am nothing. The signs of a true apostle were performed among you with utmost patience, with signs and wonders and mighty works. For in what were you less favored than the rest of the churches, except that I myself did not burden you? Forgive me for this wrong. Here for the third time I am ready to come to you, and I will not be a burden, for I seek not what is yours, but you. For children are not obligated to save up for their parents, but parents for their children. I will most gladly spend and be spent for your souls. If I love you more, am I to be loved less? But granting that I myself did not burden you, I was crafty, you say, and got the better of you by deceit. Did I take advantage of you through any of those whom I sent to you? I urged Titus to go and sent the brother with him. Did Titus take advantage of you? Did we not act in the same spirit? Did we not take the same steps? Have you been thinking all along that we have been defending ourselves to you? It is in the sight of God that we have been speaking in Christ and all for your upbuilding, beloved. For I fear that perhaps when I come, I may find you not as I wish and that you may find me not as you wish. That perhaps there may be quarreling, jealousy, anger, hostility, slander, gossip, conceit, and disorder. I fear that when I come again, my God may humble me before you, and I may have to mourn over many of those who sinned earlier and have not repented of the impurity, sexual immorality, and sensuality that they have practiced. Thus far we read in God's holy word, may he bless it to all who hear, believe, and obey it. Amen. Amen. If you've been following along, you will certainly know that one of the pinnacles, one of the high points of this whole book of the Bible happened last week in verse 9. It's a verse to be underlined. It's a verse to uh, emblazon on signage in your home or on a card in your wallet or on a magnet on your refrigerator, wherever it can bring truth to your heart and soul. 
For there in the midst of boasting about his weakness, suffering under the thorn that kept him humble, the Lord God spoke to Paul. He said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. How freeing that is to the Christian. How liberating that is to the leader among Christians. I don't know what Paul's most precious revelation was. He knew a lot. I would not be surprised if that verse was most precious to him. The words of his God. My grace is sufficient for you. God's grace saves us and brings us into a right relationship with him. It's by grace you've been saved, and this through faith. It is not by works, lest any man should boast. We're saved by grace, and then we're sustained by grace. We're empowered by grace to live the Christian life. Even though we're weak, and the world is broken, and much of the church is in disorder at times. That pinnacle... That verse is followed today by the rest of the chapter where Paul basically says it's time for some accountability. That grace has been at work in me. God's power has been at work in me. And now it's time for you to deal rightly with that, to recognize that, to receive the gospel ministry and to respond properly to it and to leave your sins Accountability will come. Isn't it wonderful to get a piece of mail from the IRS? It's uh, pretty sobering. It's one thing to get bills. And what's in the mail? Just bills. But all of a sudden, oh, here's a notice from the IRS. And if it's really thick, it's a little scary. All those papers. Because we fear that that maybe we've done something wrong or the government's going to scrutinize us. My friends, the Bible has told us plainly from the beginning to the end that there will be a day of accounting for us, for all humanity. And Paul writes to the Corinthians to tell them a time of accountability is coming. He's going to return to the church he helped plant. It serves us well to know that accountability is ahead of us. That we dare not listen to a sermon or read our Bibles carelessly or callously. Oh, that's good. I know who needs to know that. I'm going to send it to so-and-so. It needs to come to us. So let's look at these few paragraphs and see what Paul is saying to Corinth and to us. The first heading I would put before you, beginning in verse 11, is that we need to recognize God's gospel ministry. God is the one at work through his servant. God is still at work today. Now Paul begins mentioning this sad reversal of roles. He says, I've been acting the fool. I've been bragging. I've been putting things out there. I've been making my boast. And I've not been comfortable with that. He says, it's only necessary because of the gamesmanship that you've been playing. 
And he says very plainly, I ought to have been commended by you. He said earlier, you, the fruit of his gospel ministry, says Paul to the Corinthians, you're my letter of commendation. If anybody wants to know I'm a minister of the gospel, look at the fruit of my ministry. But there's a sad reversal of roles because of the disorder in Corinth. They should have received God's apostle with gratitude instead of letting Paul stoop to these foolish arguments and force him further away from the humility he longed to practice. You can almost hear him squirm. I'm not at all inferior to those super apostles, those men among you who think they're big shots. I'm not inferior to them, even though I'm nothing. Which is it, Paul? It's both. He desires that humility. Christians ought not to play worldly, wise, gamemanship games. And Paul goes on here to say that it was God's ministry that was upon him, and they should have seen the signs. Signs were given to them. He says in verse 12, The signs of a true apostle were performed among you with utmost patience, with signs and wonders and mighty works. What did it take to be an apostle? We don't have time for a history lesson this morning, but if you remember from uh, the book of Acts, the apostles were those that Jesus commissioned and sent out. They were originally 12 of his original disciples. Judas fell away. So the 11, right in Acts chapter 1, said we need to pick a, a new man to be with us. And the Spirit led Peter through the process, and there were two requirements. You had to have been with Jesus since the day of his baptism through his resurrection and need to be a witness of the resurrection. So you had to be with Jesus and have met the risen Jesus to be an apostle. And they had some candidates. And do you remember Bible trivia question, who'd they pick? Matthias. I bet that those charlatans in Corinth were, had a whispering campaign. You know, Paul wasn't one of the original 12. And in fact, Paul was still a Jew and hostile to Christianity when Jesus was baptized, when Jesus ministered. Paul was there when Stephen was stoned. He really isn't one of them. Can, can you hear how they would take Paul's unique calling and use it against him? If you know the life of Paul, you know a couple of things. He did meet the risen Lord Jesus Christ face to face. And for a season, which the Bible only refers to, does not describe, Paul had access to Jesus in the wilderness for a period of three years. Paul had some personal tutoring from Jesus. Paul was qualified to be an apostle. And Paul says, when I was in Corinth, God confirmed that because, how does he say it? that signs and wonders and mighty works were performed among you. There's a passive uh, tense there in the verb. And it's clear that Paul was also part of that passiveness. It was God himself who worked the signs and the wonders and the miracles. Paul didn't just pull a rabbit out of a hat because he was uh, a showman and tried to convince them who he was. God did these things. Signs wonders and miracles, they all refer to those supernatural feats that Paul performed in many cities, in many places, and even in Corinth. 
The word sign in particular tells us that something is done to address the mind. Something is done to distinguish a situation or an individual. These signs are aimed at the intellect. That's part of the purpose of the biblical miracles. Didn't Jesus do that? And doesn't John say these signs were performed that you would know that Jesus was the Messiah? The word wonders talks about the impact it has, the miraculous shock effect on the senses and your feelings. Signs and wonders together, that combination, that duo of terms, signs and wonders, is is what happened in Exodus during the ten plagues. They were signs and wonders. God was identifying Moses as his spokesman. In Acts chapter 2, we heard of the early church gathering, Acts 2.42. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and breaking of the bread and the prayers and the uh, fellowship. In, in Acts 2.43, it says, And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. These New Testament wonders and signs were evidence of being an apostle. And then the term miracle. Paul said all three here. Not just signs and wonders, but miracles. The superlative degree of evidence was put before you. Miracles, the the word here for power, mighty power, works and deeds of power. So it wasn't just like, okay, one leg shorter than the other, and now they're even. It it was things that were evidently acts of power. But they missed the boat and they're still questioning Paul. They're questioning God's way of sending them truth. The kicker here with the signs and wonders and miracles, we're told in verse 12 that they were done with patience, with utmost patience. Do you see that? Paul said, oh, you weren't there the day of the miracle. There wasn't just one but it was, there was a continuing witness to Paul's authenticity. And it was done patiently, enduringly. And if they didn't get it, it's not Paul's fault. This great patience, this great endurance, Paul would write about in Colossians 1.11, as he prayed, being strengthened with all power, according to his glorious might for all endurance with patience and joy. That's how Paul prayed for those believers. That's how Paul behaved when he was at Corinth. Patience, patience, patience. Finally here in recognizing God's gospel ministry, verse 13 reminds us that Paul acted with grace. In fact, he served Gratis. There was no bill, no charge. He says explicitly, for in what were you less favored? He's using kind of a, a, a quiet, humble approach to the situation than the rest of the churches, except that I myself did not burden you. I never charged you. I never took offerings from you to support my ministry, my time among you. I was there for a year and a half. Other churches paid for me to be with you. As one commentator put it, with a kind of playful irony, Paul says that the only wrong he did the Corinthians was not asking them for money. 
and they couldn't really get their mind around it, and they continued to think that that made him more suspicious that he didn't act with money. And, and many today are so captivated by money, if something's done for free, we too grow suspicious. They did not recognize God's gospel ministry when it was present in the person of Paul. Is God at work today? Is God at work here? Is God at work in other places? Do we recognize that? Are we grateful for that? Do we submit to that? Our second heading this morning is that we need to recognize God's edifying purpose. Recognize God's edifying purpose. Here in verse 14, Paul begins to speak of uh, his next visit. There's news here. Uh, Here for the third time, I'm ready to come to you. Now, if you've been following from the beginning, it's been many, many weeks since we started this letter in chapter 1 and chapter 2. Paul was already on the defensive because he didn't show up for a planned visit. And they were complaining. He had visited first to help plant the church. And the book of Acts talks all about that. Then he went away and then some trouble came up and he had to make a painful visit to the church. We don't know much about that. We can only infer from other passages, such as chapter 2 of this letter. He says, For I made up my mind not to make another painful visit to you. For if I cause you pain, who is there to make me glad but the one whom I have pained? He understood the, the difficulties of, of making a second painful visit. First visit planted the church, second visit was the painful visit where he had to enact some discipline. And since that, he had heard back some things that the discipline worked. There's some things to be very glad for, and yet some things were not yet fixed. So he's planning visit number three. James Denny says, It is not his own interest which brings him to Corinth again, but theirs. It is not avarice which impels him but love. Do you see how he speaks of this upcoming visit? I'm ready to come to you, verse 14, and I will not be a burden, so he's not going to ask for money this time, for I seek not what is yours. He's not just there to get into their purse or their wallet, but I seek you. What do you mean by that, Paul? He seeks they're good. He seeks the relationship. He's not in it for the money or the fame. He doesn't want a, fo- a group of followers that say, I am of Paul, I am of Apollos, or whatever. He wants to see believers growing. He wants to see them studying their word and serving Christ, using their gifts properly and humbly. And so he announces this third visit And he goes on to talk about the quality of that visit. It may seem odd to you that he goes on this way, but he does. In verse 14, he says, For children are not obligated to save up for their parents, but parents for their children. Where did that come from? If you're reading your Bible and you're not sure what the transition is, slow down and think about it a little bit. He's planning a visit, and he's not coming like the IRS 
He's not coming, per se, uh, to take an offering from them. How is he coming? Well, he's talking now about what parents do with their children. Paul is saying, I'm coming in this parent pattern. I'm coming as a father. Does that make sense? Well, he fathered those believers. He was used of the Spirit to bring them to Christ. So he was kind of like a, uh, a midwife and a father. He's a parent to them. And he says, as in normal families, the norm is that parents provide for the children. Here's your supper. Eat it up. Here's a warm bed. Go to sleep tonight. Here's uh, your backpack. Off to school you go. Parents provide for the children. And he's just trying to rattle them out of these suspicions. And, and they're, they're, they're... he said, uh, but granting that I myself did not burden you, I was crafty, you say. <clears throat> they know he didn't charge them money, so they're saying, Paul, you only did that because you had a, a secret plot. You're using reverse psychology or something's wrong. And they said he was crafty. And, and the word is a horrible word. Uh, unscrupulous, scurrilous character. I forgot some of the uh, synonyms for the Greek term that I put down here. Crafty is usually esteemed in modern culture. Oh, that guy's kind of crafty. This is the bad crafty. And they were saying that about Paul. And Paul's saying, no, me and my partners were not crafty guys. There's no deceit here. He appealed to the historic record in verse 17. He uses these rhetorical questions. Did we do this? Did we do that? And the answer is no. It begs it as no. And anyone who knows my time among you should answer properly. He cites Titus, his partner. Titus was esteemed and welcomed by them. They loved Titus. I don't know if he was more handsome than Paul or more eloquent or had a winsome smile or softer tone of voice. We don't know the differences. They were kind of worldly. Maybe they were drawn to worldly differences. But they loved Titus. So Paul says, hey, Titus and I behaved the same way. The same ministry. So he deals head on with those accusations of craftiness. And he reminds us that it's important to be known by the company you keep. We have to be careful of guilt by association. That's a logical fallacy and it's a, it's a wrong conclusion. But the company we keep can also say something about us. If there are partners, if they're those with whom we share convictions. Titus and his character was a help to Paul and helped Paul with his character. And, and he brings that up in his defense. And finally here, there's a fourth point to this second heading. Paul is not defensive, but devoted. Verse 19 here is a transition. I know it looks like it belongs to the next paragraph, but I find it, it belongs right between the two. Have you been thinking all along that we've been defending ourselves to you? Do you think I'm just posturing to keep myself out of trouble? Whatever Paul is saying here, he's not saying it just to defend himself. He's not fixing a wounded pride he says it is in the sight of God that we have been speaking in Christ and all for your upbuilding beloved dear people this is why I labor this is why I preach and teach 
and bear with you. Paul says, I'm not just trying to make myself look good or effective. I'm here for you. He claims to love them and he calls them beloved. He's going to turn this corner and he's going to talk very explicitly about coming judgment. But he says, it's because God wants to use me to build you up. He planted this church. Others have watered and helped it grow, but I'm a part of that too. And this is what you need to acknowledge. Paul is devoted. You know, Paul had spent more time with this congregation than with any other church he planted or wrote to. Right? Not just the two letters we have, but there was a third letter that's missing. Multiple visits, commitment of his staff and his partnerships. Oh, you guys better go to Corinth. Help him out. He spent so much time. He was vested. As one commentator said, the apostle seems nearly at the end of himself in trying to win over the Corinthians but it is precisely at the point where Paul seems on the verge of lashing out at them that we find him overflowing in love. Amazing love. How how can it be, Paul? These people just called you a scurrilous rascal. They, They make fun of your thorn in the flesh. They haven't really been listening. They haven't changed. You used to love them? Well, human love, self-centered love, typically only loves what loves it back. But what Paul's talking about here is agape love, God-like love, Christ-like love. He's embodying the pattern that Jesus gave. He came to his own, and his own loved them not, it says of Jesus. Paul persisted with these Corinthians even amidst contentions out of gospel love. And Paul points us to Christ time and time again. Paul said, I will spend and be spent. Do you remember back in chapter 8, verse 9? He who was rich became poor so that we who were poor could become rich. Paul's pattern is Christ. This has been a gospel ministry with gospel purposes, and Paul is just wringing his hands for them to see it. The gospel only requires your repentance and faith. Will you receive Christ? And will you receive those whom Christ sends to you to speak to you? The final heading here is we need to recognize God's coming judgment, that day of accountability, that day of um, answerability, the time for an audit, the time for uh, giving an account. Paul says here in verse 19 in this transition, he says, uh, this has all been happening in the sight of God. My ministry, my writing to you, I know God's watching. You should be aware God's watching. So Paul has nothing to hide here. And Paul's agenda is clear. 
This has not been a mere exchange of letters. God has been watching and speaking to the Corinthians. Now, could I also pause and say, as we've gone through 12 chapters of Corinthians together, is God speaking to us? Is God watching us interact with these texts? Chapter 1, chapter 2, chapter 3, chapter 5. What was chapter 5 again? Something about if any man is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has gone. It better be gone. The new has come. Did we hear that? God was watching as you listened to that sermon. Or when he said we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal to us to be reconciled to God. That's the gospel ministry. Be reconciled to God. To pursue sinners. To embrace sinners. To love sinners. And tell them the truth they must hear. That was chapter 5. What did we do with that? How were we listening This hasn't been a history lesson, my friends. You probably know a lot more about Corinth than you ever thought you'd need to know. But Paul's writing to them saying, hey, guys, there's going to be a test. God is coming to see how you have dealt with the truth. And he's not just talking about Corinth. He's talking about Clifton Park. He's talking about us. In the sight of God. As we grow up, we all know how to hide certain things when nobody's looking. We can check our teeth or adjust our clothing. You know, we we try not to be seen doing things that are unseemly, even more so with sin. But God, his eye is upon us. And he's been watching us take in these 12 chapters. It makes me tremble. It makes Paul tremble. He talks about fear twice here. The Apostle Paul, who, who had gone through all the stonings and the beatings and the shipwrecks, he's fearful. How does he express it? Back to our text. Verse 20, the first fear. For I fear that perhaps when I come, I may find you not as I wish. Paul's been writing with the help of the Holy Spirit of God to send them truth. And what have they done with it? I may find you not as I wish, and that you may find me not as you wish. Well, what did they wish for? Well, they thought Paul was just a blowhard. He really didn't have it. They're going to find out he has it. And with the authority of God, he's going to speak truth to sinful behavior, sinful attitudes. And he fears that it's going to result in quarreling, jealousy, anger, hostility, slander, gossip, conceit, and disorder. Paul's first fear is that disorderly conduct will erupt at his arrival. James Denny says when Paul reaches Corinth, it will not be to explain and justify his conduct, either against his rivals or those whom his rivals have misled, but... To take prompt and vigorous action against disorders in the church as the apostle of Jesus Christ. The sins listed here in this first list in verse 20, we're not going to pick them apart. They are simply sins of the will, sins of carnality of religion, said one. Religion 
in disarray, lashing out against the Apostle Paul. It happens. It happens. As people want to do church, people can disagree and there can be contentions. Just make sure what side you're on. It better be the side of truth. It better be a humble acceptance of what God's word says. Paul anticipates this, but he's not going to relent. He is still planning to go. Second fear. Right away in verse 21. He continues. I fear that when I come again, my God may humble me before you. Uh, Paul, what's going to happen? He's concerned that he's going to have to go into church discipline mode. And that he's going to have to lower the boom. And that he's going to have to appear judgmental. And they're not going to like it. I may have to mourn over many of those who have sinned earlier and have not repented of the impurity, sexual immorality, and sensuality that they have practiced. This isn't a theological disagreement. The Corinthians were pretty well taught. This was a lifestyle issue. This was about their behaviors. This list of sins is a list of self-indulgence, sins of the flesh. Paul had previously condemned these in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. He said, it's actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you of a kind not tolerated even among pagans. It was bad, and it was visible, and it was clearly a case of sin. He said, for a man has his father's wife, and that was tolerated on Sundays and Wednesdays and in between. So he's talking about explicit self-indulgence, sins of the flesh, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, he had implored them to flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but sexual immorality, the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. It was this attitude that I know the gospel, I'm saved, but it doesn't matter what I do. Libertine attitude. That's behavior without moral principles or a sense of responsibility. We live in a hypersexual age. People even take their sexual preferences and predilections as their identity. It's very sad. But as Christians, we need to know the Bible brings it up time and time again because it is a subtle sin, it is often a secret sin, and it will undermine your spiritual life. So Paul's worried first that the interaction's not going to go smoothly. And secondly, he's going to face those people with unrepented sin. It's sober language. But Paul is writing to lead them to repentance. So now my, my first closing exhortation is this. Root out unrepented sins. Root them out. Search your heart. Look for the log in your eye rather than the speck in your brother's eye. These people, it's been months, if not years, that immorality has continued in Corinth. And Paul says the boom will fall. We don't talk about repentance enough. I'm sorry. 
but we're talking about it now. You need to root out any sin for which you've not repented. Any pet sin that you've learned to live with, like that odd thing in your house that you should probably fix, but you've learned to live with it. In your life, sin doesn't belong. Sinful attitudes, sinful actions. I can't begin to tell you how important it was for Jesus to leave some of his last instructions for churches and speak about repentance multiple times. I'm referring to the book of Revelation. You remember the seven letters to the seven churches. Jesus dictates them to John. And the very first letter goes to the church in Ephesus. Very healthy church, right? Ephesus. Revelation 2, 5 says, Remember therefore from where you have fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come and remove your lampstand unless you repent. And he goes on. There's seven letters here. Almost all of them call for repentance. The last one, the church at Laodicea, Revelation 3.19. Those whom I love, Jesus says to John. And John writes to the church and writes to us. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. One of the most spiritual things, friends, that you can do this Sunday is to repent of sin. Yes, it's great to sing a solo or play instruments to the glory of God, but what God wants to see in his children is the forsaking of sin as we cling to Christ. This table, this meal that we'll go to in a moment ought to remind us to walk with Christ and not with our temptations and sins. And I know it's hard. C.S. Lewis said this, repentance is no fun at all. It is something harder than merely eating humble pie. It means, says Lewis, it means unlearning the self-conceit and self-will that we've been training ourselves into for thousands of years. Repentance is not fun at all. It's hard. But that's what Paul was wanting to provoke before he came. Second closing exhortation, more briefly, is this. Conform not to the world, but to the word. Conform to the word. Listen and submit. Paul had written them multiple times. He had sent spokesmen. And he was saying, guys, you need to hear these words because by these words you will be judged. God is watching. Paul put it so clearly when he wrote to the Romans 12, verses 1 and 2. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, present your bodies, not to sensual sin, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. There must be change if you're following Christ. If you're a new creation, the old had better be gone. Romans 12, 2, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Let your mind be shaped by Scripture. Read the letters of Paul. Read the New Testament. Read the Gospels. Read the Old Testament. You see, the aim of the Gospel is not merely doctrinal truth, but lives that connect with God, that delight in His will, and further his interests in glad communion with him.
And final word is this, express your gratitude to God for his servants. I'm not looking for a well done. But when I see Paul time and time again say, hey, look, you guys should be commending me. You should be paying attention to the ministry. That's what pastors want. That's what preachers want. For the word of God to dwell in you richly, to bear fruit in you. Give thanks to God for those who bring you the word and receive that word. The Lord gives many gifts, not just preachers. He gives some that pray for you, some that exhort you, some that show you mercy, some that use helps with you. All the gifts of the body God deploys to build you up. Be thankful. Be a grateful Christian, especially in the gathering of believers. And may God use his word this day, this word, to show us his edifying purposes and his grace. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, even as we've entered into Paul's wrestling with his rivals and wicked men back in Corinth. We see his heart, we see Christ's heart for sinners. We see the warning of accountability that will come. Father, we also see the parent love of provision for our needs, giving us the truth, the milk of the word by which we will grow. Father, take us, whether young or old in Christ, and grow us today. Lead us in repentance and faith today and get glory in your people gathered here today. We pray, we pray and ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.